You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketing director for Studio 420. Today we meet Lara Fortis, a cannabis market research expert and CEO of Fortis Consulting. Lara explains how cannabis companies rely on retail data alone for market research, but it doesn't tell the whole story. She tells us the additional market research you need to make informed decisions about your product development. She also claims that bad research is worse than no research because it gives you a false sense of security. She talks about the invisible shopper and how they influence the retail data without being there. Lara gives us great insights into the cannabis consumer marketplace. Let's listen in. Hi there, Pam. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good. Well, I guess you're in Denver, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm in what's called the Front Range. I grew up in Los Angeles, so I'm one of the people that Denver people hate for, you know, probably causing more traffic and raising housing values, but (laughs) anyway, okay, well, I'm glad we got to meet. It's very exciting. Um, Yeah, I think it's just a great topic. I mean, consumer research in general and the cannabis industry and like a lot of what I do, people don't budget for. They presume marketing research is too expensive. And the reason that I got into my own business was because I believe that market research shouldn't be the sole purview of Fortune 500 companies. There are ways to be creative and scrappy and nimble and make it affordable to companies of all stages and sizes and industries. And I happen to be drawn to industries that are controversial or stigmatized or people don't always want to talk about. Um, And I like to find niches that people that are overlooked, like kind of curious consumers, invisible shoppers, people like that. um, There's a presumption that people think market research is always retail data, like headset and. um, Oh, it's retail data, you said? I don't, I don't deal in retail data, but most cannabis companies, if they do market research, they'll say, oh, I have headset or oh, I use BDS analytics or something like that. Um, But one of the things that I discovered this past year in a survey that I did is that even though it's not technically legal to do so, 50% of the people coming into a dispensary are buying at least some portion of their, their basket size is for other people. And you see this because people who are buying for other people spend more. And so there's a faulty assumption that sophisticated marketers know is not the case out in the CPG world that the purchaser and the consumer are the same people. And in cannabis, that's not the case. And there are tons of, you know, I mean, almost everyone I know has bought for someone else, you know, on the down low, but no one talks about it. So the people that that are going based on retail data have a deflated sense of how many people are consuming and an inflated sense of how much they're using. Oh, I see. Because of that. Interesting. And it doesn't, 
it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I have a kid. If I buy Captain Crunch and I'm captured by retail data, no one's saying like, oh, that mom is a Captain Crunch eater. You know, they know I'm buying for other people in my household. But there doesn't seem to be that same level of sophistication in cannabis. And so the retail data is really skewed. And right. yet everyone relies on it. Ah, what a good point. Yeah. That's one of the things that I'm trying to get out there that's a little controversial, um, is that people are relying on retail data to the exclusion of really digging into what it means. Uh -huh. And it's not to say that it's not crucially important. It is but it doesn't tell a whole story. That's and um, that is my issue with it. But it also doesn't measure um, drivers of purchase intent. So from a marketing point of view, you're really handcuffed if you don't know the reasons why people buy what they buy. And, the re and some of what they're buying is for other people. And so you need to understand the reason why they're buying for other people, you know? and even some, you know, like I got kind of granular, like, okay, if you're buying for another person, are you making a unilateral decision? Like your grandma has chronic pain and you're bringing her something? Or is it your spouse and you know she has insomnia and she likes edibles and you're making this decision based on not being able to call, call her and say like, hey, honey, would you you know, would you like this wanna fast acting sleep gummy? No, you kind of have to be hypothesizing in your mind what's gonna be best for the person you're buying for because you can't overtly say you're doing it. Right, right, right. I, I kind of encourage people to think like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Successful People, like begin with the end in mind, which is usually make more money. Usually the way to do that is marketing. And then market research is a tool to optimize that marketing, to sharpen that marketing. So surprisingly, some of my clients are marketing people who realize that by carving out a small percentage of that budget for optimizing the marketing and making it data-driven. Um, a lot of small companies go on hunches and gut feelings and their partners or their spouses or their you know family and then there's finger pointing if it doesn't turn out well there's at least two ways to go so you might as well test you know ab testing or some other thing to make sure that you're making the decision based on data about your consumers not based on what you like or the marketing director's spouse likes or the ceo's daughter likes or whatever some of the random reasons that people make big ticket decisions um, and you remove that reliance on gut feelings and hunches that got you there and take a step back and do the research digging deeper and having someone like you kind of look at it differently has to bring a bigger deeper richer perspective into who these people are because that's what you focus on yeah, I mean, I've, I've really helped some clients pivot, like I did some work for a company, um, and they had a vacuum sealed glass jar that they were aiming at the can of, uh, the can of people who are really sophisticated, cared about the 
precision, dampness, dryness of their weed. And that was the direction they're going with. But when we started testing it, it was actually parents who didn't want their kids to smell that there's weed in the house that offered a much more robust and financially viable opportunity because there are way more parents trying to hide their weed than there are canisseurs who don't already have a, a, a workable you know, system for keeping their weed the way they want. And that's pivotal. And that's not the first time that's happened um, where people make presumptions about their target audience and there's multiple target audiences and one of them might be better suited to them than the others. You know, there's very rarely a singular target audience or a lot of things, um, startups, they're like, we're, we're appealing to everybody. And by appealing to everybody, you end up appealing to nobody because you're not differentiating yourself. You're not focused. You're not, um, you don't have a unique selling proposition necessarily if you're trying to appeal to everybody. So I really encourage um, businesses to kind of dial it in a bit and focus on what's going to be differentiating and not be so reliant on demographics. Like I've had, like I've, I've been doing market research and, you know, from Fortune 500 to startup for 25 years. And a lot of things have changed during that time. And a lot of things that are conventional ways of looking at research don't really apply in cannabis. And an example of that would be like the household income question. Everyone wants a household income question. Okay, well, if you're making $100,000 and you're um, you know, a family four in New York City, you're probably like poppers. Yeah. Whereas if you're making $100,000 in, you know, suburban Chicago and living by yourself, that looks very different. The number of people in the household, where you live, not to mention, you know, cannabis is, is optional essentially. So it isn't like toilet paper where you can calculate out like an estimate what a household's gonna use. With cannabis, you could have a, you know, here in Denver, someone making $40,000 a year and spending 10% of it on cannabis, or you can have someone making a quarter million dollar a year and spending even less on cannabis. So I don't even ask the household income question because number one, it's not accurate. You know, it's not an accurate gauge of anything. And um, it's not actionable. And I think that having bad research is worse than no research at all because it gives you a false sense of security that you're making an informed decision. And that's some of my issue with making decisions strictly on retail data. You know, you're, you're making a presumption of a one-to-one -one correlation between purchaser and consumer, and that's just simply not correct. Well, actually, I just want to even back up because what you were just saying about trying to appeal to everyone. Like, I don't know if there's any other industry where cannabis does appeal from the 18 year old to the 80 year old. Um, you do have that big customer range. I'm, I'm probably over analytical and I let people know the pros and cons of different approaches. So for instance, I'm working with a company that's um, launching a um, edible in, in California in November. It's 
a product that's focused um, on providing cannabis that could be used for work enhancing activities like focus and calm or, or their goals. But they don't know what dosage is optimal. So I'm working with them to distribute the product um, for four versions, four different doses, and then measure which has the greatest appeal and try to optimize it. Now, is it going to be optimized for every single person? No. Um, but there are ways to figure out what's the optimal dose for the majority of people who are in your target audience. Um, and obviously that's going to look different, you know, like bud tenders tend to have a very high threshold for THC. So, you know, I'm not going to include them in a consumer sample or someone who's, um, you know, a heavy user versus a light user versus a new user, because it's, it's aimed to appeal to the kind of curious as a means in which to segue into a product that doesn't have a traditional high, but provides functional benefits. Um, so we'll look at those different user populations and figure out which of the four is the best scenario to go with, or figuring out how to combine the individual edibles in a way in which is dosed for women versus men. Like it turns out, I thought that um, effects were somehow linked to weight. And it turns out the way in which a lot of edibles work, they're more linked to um, biological gender and other factors. And so we'll be measuring that as well. When you sit down with a company that approaches you for your services, like, what is the first thing that you say to them? How do you start figuring out what they need and in your mind, organizing it? And, you know, those, those kind of onboarding questions, what, yeah. like if I was a new client coming to you, how would you approach this? What would you be asking me? I'd probably ask you if you had a market research fairy godmother to answer three questions to forward your mission, which is generally to make more money, what questions do you need to know to facilitate the product optimization or the marketing or whatever it's going to take to achieve that end goal? Um, and then go from there. Um, I'm very committed to making my clients look like rock stars to their internal clients. And so I want to know, what is it that keeps you up at four in the morning that if you knew would assuage your concerns? Oftentimes they have two or three directions to go in and they don't know what the right one is, is to go in and providing market research to answer that provides a lot of peace of mind and makes the process smoother. You can confidently say, these were the options. This is what appears to have the most appeal. So we're making an informed decision based on consumer insights, not my gut feeling or my hunch or my anecdotal evidence, because um, a lot of times my clients are currently using their staff or their friends or um, their Facebook <laughs> group to conduct market research. And whenever you have what's called a self-selected sample, which means that, you know, they're not a census representative sample or any sort of representative sample. They're connected in some way. You're going to inflate the appeal because generally people want to 
support you and like you. And um, But it's very common for entrepreneurs to get really attached to what they're doing and then not to have blinders on and not to see the right. picture. Especially when their Facebook friends and their family and their Instagram followers are all, all telling them how awesome they are and they don't realize that they're not representative. Right. Marketers tend to overemphasize sometimes attributes of a product, even benefits of a product. But there's a, a concept in market research called laddering, which is based on the assumption that there are sort of a finite set of values that human beings have and that that ultimately drives purchase behavior. So things like peace of mind, um, family responsibility, smooth life, um, you know, freedom, you know, those kind of things ultimately behind the scenes drive a purchase decision more so than just the strict attributes and benefits. Usually those benefits ladder up to some higher order values that may not be even conscious, but drive a purchase decision ultimately. I'm curious what you're seeing in the, um, like the elderly community, because for anything, either for product development or for retail, bringing that group in is huge. That is going to be such a, mm -hmm. that is an untapped market that I don't even really see many products out there who are even targeting them yet, because really it's the retail and the dispensaries that first need to work on getting them into the stores and getting them comfortable with the whole, um, you know, mm -hmm. concept of it and things like that. So I'm just curious what you're, if you're even really looking at that. Well, I believe that a lot of older people are what I call invisible customers and they get ignored because they don't hit the retail data because other people are shopping for them because they're of a generation where there's more stigma. They don't want their government issued ID scanned they don't want someone seeing them. So my sense based on the data is that there are a lot more people over age 60 who are consuming cannabis in some form than will be picked up by point of sales data. Same with like Chardonnay moms or soccer moms or like we're trying to reach them, but we can't. Well, they tend to have someone else shopping for and so they're not going to be picked up on retail data. So I think that to, to assume that the messaging and the attempt to get more um, customers who are older or who are Gen X women or what have you is a more complex um, task because they're not going to shop in traditional ways like showing up at a dispensary and giving over their ID and, you know, interacting with a bud tender. Right. It's just not as likely so, to happen. Um, also going back to, you were saying um, in market research, you would not look at household income as a data. What would be the things that you would be looking at to give to your clients? Well, I would focus more on attitudinal and psychographic data than on strict demographics. Not to say that there aren't categories of consumers who are value-driven. They're 
you know, categories of men or personas where, you know, most THC for the lowest price. So it's, there are certainly personas or archetypes that work for consumers. I just have a hypothesis that it's not, that usage is not, um, and purchase is not inextricably linked to household income. Because I know bud tenders and I know high users who are spending seven to 8% of their income on cannabis. And I know people who are spending half a percentage of their income on cannabis. It's, it's really, what I ask is, is, you know, past 90 days purchase um, or, you know, typical monthly budget. Um, and those don't correlate with household income. And that's why I don't think it's smart to use those as a criteria. Now, if I was developing archetypes um, or personas, I might include that question, but I would, because, it does tend to be part of that archetype. But as a general question, it's not very insightful. So what questions, like when you're doing these surveys, uh, what kind of questions do you ask people? Like if I was one of those people that signed up for your survey. Well, I tend to ask more questions like what drives your purchase interest, like chronic pain, anxiety, reproductive health, um, depression, ADHD, what, you know, like, what is it that prompts you consume cannabis? My questions tend to be more like why driven, as opposed to why would, I'm not going to waste time asking something that could be captured by retail data, like how much did you spend? Um, you know, how much did you pay for? You know, when did you most recently go like that, you know, I don't like to, I don't like redundancy and I don't like ineffectiveness and I don't like wastefulness. So I almost never ask questions that could be answered by retail data. I ask questions that have answers that could influence how someone produces a product or markets mm, a product. That, yeah, I see. That's totally great. How you supplement that data. Um, so what, mm -hmm. what are some key things to do or not to do when it comes to market research on cannabis? Well, I would say don't launch a survey to your Facebook group or your Instagram followers and draw a conclusion that that's representative of your, your current and potential audience. If it's like, hey, we're, you know, we're introducing a new flavor then sure. you know then launching on your facebook page or instagram you know because you care about what the opinion is of your current customers but if you're trying to increase market share have you know gain purchase you know purchase interest from people who are competitive users then you're not going to get that data from your facebook yeah. group or your instagram following and that's where I see people make a lot of mistakes is cutting corners on representativeness of sample. Right, right. And what's the best thing that you think we should do? Like how, how to approach it? Well, it depends what you're trying to accomplish. Like if you're measuring effect, then 
you know, getting people from your Facebook group is fine. You know, you do an in-home use test, you're measuring effect or taste or texture, fine. It's when you're trying to make a decision about how to market in a, in a larger context beyond your current customers that, you know, you owe it to yourself to have a census representative sample. So if you're a, if you're a California edibles company um, based in Oakland, the likelihood is that maybe your in-home use test, like a small, more qualitative or uh, in-home use test sample could be in Oakland, but when you go to figure out uh, a larger, you know, a larger question, like what is the, what are the three top um, messages to be on our packaging? What are the things that we should be including in our um, social media, uh, paid or otherwise? Um, those kind of things, I think you should use a sample of people who are not connected to the mm, company. Right, right. So it sort of varies. It depends what you're trying right. to accomplish. Um, so I'm not saying unequivocally, like, don't ever turn to your Facebook or Instagram following to do research. Um, it makes sense to do that. Um, but just it's limited in terms of its greater applicability to a larger population. And it doesn't have to be, you know, people think, oh, I have to do a thousand surveys. You don't have to do a thousand surveys. Like you can get, a, you know, there's some things we're doing 300 is completely adequate. Um, and so, you know, you're not um, Procter and Gamble marketing, you know, a, a household toilet paper or whatever it is. Cannabis, you can, you can get away with smaller samples. I mean, if you're an MSO, you want to do a sample in different in the different states that you operate in, because there are differences by state on some criteria. I've done work where I look at the national results versus the state-specific results, and they're very different. Like the number of people shopping for other people when they make a cannabis purchase is about 49%. Well, in Massachusetts, it's 75%, because there are a lot of colleges and underage people in Massachusetts. So it's, you know, three out of four people going into a dispensary in Massachusetts have another person in mind that they're also buying for, whereas some other states it's lower. Um, kind of curious, like New Jersey, the reasons that people buy in New Jersey are totally different in many, or at least in many respects, than in Maine or Massachusetts, because New Jersey has a big pharma. So the things that motivate other people to try cannabis, like getting off prescription medication, avoiding painkillers. In New Jersey, it's more like, you know, you're, you're two degrees separation from someone in pharma, and that's not a deterrent for them. So they're, they're more motivated by other factors than you see in like a state like Massachusetts or Maine. Right, I could see that um, smaller samplings of, of surveys or, or, or testing um, can really work in the cannabis industry because we're still so siloed within our states. But it, it mm -hmm. probably, if once we open up, I would imagine you would need 
um, bigger samplings based on what preferences are in the different states. Yeah, and, and the form factor preferences are different. Like for people who don't currently consume cannabis, but are sort of on the fence about trying it, 67% of those people are going to come in through edibles because it's a familiar, seemingly non-threatening form factor. Ironically, it tends to be the place that people fuck things up the most. So, but in terms of, of perceptions, of, what do you um, mean? What, why is that? What do you mean? Um, I think almost every person new to cannabis who has tried edibles has at some point taken the wrong dose. Oh, yes. Oh, I see. And so um, there's really a big push and the onus is on bud tenders and the industry to, you know, emphasize that, you know, go slow mentality when it comes to edibles because i mean including me where you're like no i'm not i'm not feeling this yet and then you rationally oh you know i'm going to sleep or oh i'm i'm heavier than the other person and then all of a sudden you're taking you know way too much and it might turn you off of cannabis as a whole as opposed to edibles or being you know being willing to admit like oh i i misused this it's not the it's not the product's fault it was it was a user error <laughs> essentially um and uh i think about 67 percent come in via edibles and then 30 percent through um some of the more you know like inhalables like uh dry flour um and uh, I'd have to look that up, but I can't remember if third is salves. I think it depends, like the chronic pain, the people that come in for chronic pain yeah. are more likely to use a salve or a topical of some sort. And, you know, other, you know, other people are drawn to, to different form factors. Um, you know, there's a, a, a lot of people who in my generation who maybe tried cannabis, you know, out of a, you know, a baggie of cannabis and used a bong in the 80s. And that's our image of it. So resetting that mindset and realizing that this is just like, you know, another product that you can use or misuse, um, but it's not inherently bad when you have, when your image is what you tried in college or just say no to drugs or dare and Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and, you know, the, the Scooby mystery mobile, like there's just <laughs> Cheech and Chong, you know, like there's just like lots of um, residual uh, stereotypes or what conjures up in your mind. Like I know a lot of people, women my age are consuming cannabis but they're not going into a dispensary to do so it. So how are they? How are they getting it? I usually through friends or a spouse or a partner. You know, like that. You know, there's still a lot of stigma, and especially I think giving over your government issued ID, your driver's license. That's just. I think is a really big, um, scary obstacle for a lot of people. I think so you know, too. People my age. And any age really. 
Yeah, any age nowadays, but I'm just, you know, thinking that that's, that's probably the most jarring thing. And so it's sort of incumbent on the industry to kind of like manage expectations because I know that was like a hindrance. And I know my husband in particular will not go into, you know, absolutely will not right. turn over government issued ID. I know it's, it's a problem. And he's not in a business, you know, it's not like he works for the government or he works for someplace doing drug testing. It's just that fundamental feeling of like someone's tracking me, someone's going to know. And I think that that plays a bigger role than people think in terms of deterring people from shopping in a dispensary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. They, they really have to get rid of that. I don't want to go off track, but I think that's a very big problem for people. So actually, that's not even off track because that's part of the problem for, you know, for the retail business. Um, and that's also fueling the, uh, the underground market. And, and that's what mm -hmm. we're trying not to do. So yeah, it's a real problem. Um, we have a lot of problems. <laughs> um, um, and I know you refer to your work as some of the consumers as the can of curious and the invisible shopper. Um, mm -hmm. So I know who the can of curious is, is the invisible shopper, I guess what you're saying. That's a different kind of person. I, what, oh, yeah. what I came to realize is that there are, there's this subset of invisible customers, essentially your grandmother, your spouse, your friends, the people not going into, into dispensaries on site. Those are invisible customers. They're consuming, but they're not being picked up by retail data. Now of those, I consider the invisible shoppers the ones that actually influence the indispensary purchase decision without physically being there. And to me, this is kind of a, a fascinating phenomenon because we see it in grocery shopping all the time where someone other than the consumer is doing the, the actual transactional shopping. And what I find very interesting is that of those invisible customers, some are influencing the purchase decision in the dispensary, like, you know, I'm looking for something to relax and I want a tincture because I don't want sugar or I'm looking for a vegan gummy or whatever. And you're downloading that to the person doing the shopping and then they're figuring out what fits the bill. Um, then there are people who are like, go get me XYZ brand, exactly that, that's what I want. In which case they're kind of just like shopping, you know, they're basically like a proxy shopper. Um, and then the people who are like, you know, my grandmother's, you know, got chronic arthritis and I'm buying for her and she doesn't know anything about it. She's just going to use what I give her. So there's all these cannabis consumers and a portion of them are invisible customers. And then a subset of those, half of those are invisible shoppers because they influence what happens in the dispensary without being there. Okay. So um, if we had to wrap it up with you just kind of, 
you know, looking at this whole new emerging market and once we go uh, legally, you know, federally legal and the whole country opens up and the borders open up, you're going to be looking at things differently because now you have a, you know, a lot of different types of people and wants and needs and all that kind of stuff. They need to think differently now instead of in their silo and, and, and thinking of who's just in their community. They've they really do have to open it up. Say, even if you're targeting the Canna mom, you know, well, now you're not in California with the Canna mom, the Canna mom in Arkansas, it's got to be a lot different. I've done work for Avery Dennison, like office product, where like the way in which they use them, it doesn't matter what state you're in. That's not the case with cannabis. There does tend to be um, more state-based individuality to it. Yeah, like, and especially in certain states, like, you know, like New Jersey is going to look different than other states. So interesting. So many different uh, things that can sway a customer or that you have to really think about when you're designing a product, formulating a product, mm -hmm. marketing a product. It's I love market research. I love understanding what, um, what makes people do what they do, especially with regard to purchase behavior. So, um, it's been very illuminating, you know, I don't have all the answers. I, you know, I provide sort of a niche area of market research, primary market research. And um, I know enough to see that cannabis companies are kind of early in, uh, you know, in their sophistication about marketing and the use of market research. And I'm hoping to change that by making it more accessible. When you present your work to a client, what is it that you give them? Usually it's a PowerPoint deck, you know, like a, like a presentation. Um, there are some things, you know, it depends. Is it focus groups? Is it in-depth interviews? Is it surveys? You know, depending on how sophisticated they are, there's this thing in quantitative research called cross-tabs. So sometimes people want to look by differences by age or differences by gender or differences by um, purchase volume or what have you, then, then I'll give them cross tabs as well. But I try to make it as user-friendly as possible because for the most part, people don't, you know, cannabis companies don't have a market research person on staff. So they, it's usually interacting with product innovation team or the marketing team. And I try to make it as, um, user-friendly and um, as possible and to not use presumptive jargon because that's, you know, that's not where cannabis companies are right now. And, and for the most part, even, a, even big companies, they don't need a full-time market research person. So I try to be like a, um, a fractional yeah. market research person or come in as needed and be there to support them. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that there's any niche out there with all the companies or clients that you're working for that, do you think there's a, a particular niche that someone hasn't tapped into yet? Uh, I mean, there are some brands that are truly consumer data-driven brands that have been created. Um, and I think that's cool. You know, I, as a market researcher, I love that. Um, but I can't think of any market that's being completely overlooked. And I think if they are, it's because they don't, um, 
they also don't show up on retail data. Mm. Like, I think that there are a lot more older people actually consuming or using for chronic pain, cream, salves, whatever. They're starting there. But, They're starting. But someone's, yeah, someone's buying, and, and, and a lot of times someone else is buying them for them. Right, right. So we don't know how many are actually, you know, if brands are breaking through because they're, I don't think they're being accurately measured. Right, right. Wow, so much to go. Okay, wow, Laura, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to participate on your podcast. And if there's anything that was confusing or you have follow-up questions, don't hesitate to ask. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.